morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten speaking to you from Ottawa, Canada. Longtime listeners of our show know that each and every week I have the pleasure of unpacking the weekly reading known in Hebrew as the parasha, the weekly reading from the Torah, the five books of Moses. And together, my guest and I introduce to you some of the more uh, less obvious aspects of our Torah portion. This week, Jews throughout the world read from the first parasha, the first section from the second book of Torah, known in English as Exodus and in Hebrew as Shemot. Before we begin our conversation, let me give you an overview of this week's parasha. In this week, the children of Israel find themselves in Egypt. Threatened by their growing numbers, Pharaoh enslaves them and orders the Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Puah, to kill all male babies at birth. When they do not comply, he commands his people to cast the Hebrew babies into the Nile River. A child is born of Yocheved, the daughter of Livy and her husband Amram and placed in a basket on the river, while the baby sister Miriam stands watch from afar. Pharaoh's daughter discovers the boy, raises him as her own son, and names his Moses. As a young man, Moses leaves the palace and discovers the hardship of his brethren. He sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew and kills the Egyptian. The next day, he sees two Jews fighting. When he admonishes them, they reveal his deed of the previous day. And Moses feels necessary to flee Egypt and goes to the land of Midian. There, he rescues Jethro's daughter, Jethro, a priest of Midian, and marries one of them known as Zipporah and becomes a shepherd of his father-in-law's flocks. Much of this story is well known to you, the listener. These are stories known from a variety of sources besides the Torah. This Torah portion continues with the well-known story of the burning bush. God appears to Moses in what's called a burning bush at the foot of Mount Sinai and instructs him to go to Pharaoh and demand, let my people go so that they may serve me meaning the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses' brother Aaron is appointed to serve as his spokesperson. In Egypt, Moses and Aaron assemble the elders of Israel to tell them that the time of their redemption has come. The people believe, but Pharaoh refuses to let them go and even intensifies the suffering of Israel. Moses returns to God to protest. Why have you done evil to this people? The Torah puts the words in Moses' mouth. And God promises that redemption, the leaving of Egypt, is close at hand. So this is a Torah portion of well-known stories. But even in the well-known stories, our guest this morning, Rabbi Israel Zoberman, founder of Temple Lev Tikva in Virginia Beach, Virginia, in the United States, will offer us some insights. So, Rabbi Zoberman, welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Thank you. It's a pleasure to reconnect after so many years. Thank you. Rabbi Zoberman and I uh, studied together 
nearly a half century ago. Um, and um, it is a pleasure to have you with us for the first time. And as with all our guests on their first time, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners, a little bit about your history and your career. And I have quite an interesting background. I'm the son of Polish Holocaust survivors. I was born in Kazakhstan. I believe I'm the only rabbi born in Kazakhstan, which makes me kind of uh, feel special. My parents met in Siberia. I was conceived in Siberia and born in Chu, Kazakhstan, November 1945. We left Kazakhstan to return home to Poland when I was six months old and escaped from Poland given the pogroms of 1946. We spent only four months in Poland and then we spent a short time in Austria and then two and a half years in Wetzlar, Germany in the American zone of occupation in 1949, April. My immediate family moved to Haifa, Israel, where I grew up and my father's parents and his two brothers moved to Chicago. We got uh, separated. I came to Chicago in 1966, not knowing anything about uh, American Judaism and Jewry, and I was lured into becoming uh, a Reform rabbi. And uh, it's going to be almost 50 years of this um, great uneven journey. Well, it's, it's certainly a journey that's unusual for most, um, uh, uh, most rabbis serving American congregations, and I know that you've been in uh, Virginia for most of your career. Almost 40 years now, correct? And uh, Virginia is for lovers. So I came home and uh, it's been good. Terrific. Wonderful. And um, you have a family? I have uh, a wife, Jennifer, and I have uh, uh, two children, Harel and Rachel. Harel is still single. And uh, my daughter, Rachel, blessed us with uh, two grandsons. And she and her husband live in Potomac, Maryland. Wonderful. And of course, he's a, he's a lawyer. He's a lawyer. Oh. So I thank you for the introduction. And perhaps our listeners will recognize that unlike most of our guests, Rabbi Zoberman is um, a person of many cultures. And from each of those cultures, he's uh, drawn uh, upon uh, those experiences to help us understand his insight into Torah. So it seems appropriate that we should begin the Torah portion that speaks of the transition from the patriarchal families to the families of the people of Israel. And I know that you want to speak to begin with about um, Egypt and what Egypt means um, in this Torah portion. So perhaps we can begin there. Well, it really struck me that uh, Egypt was the first diaspora where Jews first found a loving home through Joseph. And Joseph was not begrudged his foreign background, which was quite uh, a revolution for the Egyptians who detested strangers. And he was led from the pit to the palace so that he could, in time, save his own family of origin, his brethren from Canaan, and also save Egypt from the uh, forthcoming uh, famine. So here is a bridge builder, as we have just begun the uh, new secular year, 
we can see a Jew probably was the first bridge builder who reached out to all those around him, irrespective of who they were, religion, ethnic background, race, to be of help. And he was a man who had to struggle, given the fact that his uh, brothers mistreated him at one point. And I'm sure that was uh, never lost on him. And he came to uh, decide that he wanted to embrace his brothers. And through them, he reconnected to his Hebrew roots. So uh, it's quite a great, great drama. Uh, Well, what I was going to add to your insight was, of course, that the Torah tells us that uh, Joseph dressed as an Egyptian and he spoke as an Egyptian and he uh, married an Egyptian woman and he named his children with Egyptian names. Um, When you read this Torah portion, um, and you're correct that Egypt serves as the first um, example of Jews living in what we call the diaspora, outside the land of Canaan, outside the promised land. Do you see Joseph as the perfect exemplar of the Jew living in the diaspora? Uh, almost, almost. I, I think he underplayed his early Hebrew background in order to fit in. So I believe even though he rose to a top position, there was some uncer- uncertainty within him about his status in Egypt, that he could have been uh, at any given moment uh, blamed for whatever, because we saw that as a new pharaoh rose in the land so quickly, the saga of Joseph who saved Egypt was forgotten. And uh, that alerts us to the fact that the Jewish experience in the diaspora is always uncertain, even as now we face uh, growing anti-Semitism in the States and, and throughout the world, and we have the Gaza war, and, and there's something about the Jewish condition which remains uncertain to this very, very, very day. And I think that Joseph tried to blend in as much as he could, and he risked a great deal, I believe, when he revealed his identity, not only to his brethren, but to Egypt. And yet, to the credit of Egypt, he was appreciated for being uh, courageous enough for having chutzpah to admit to his low beginnings because the Canaanites were looked down upon by the Egyptians. And uh, there was a great chapter that opened up of saving his uh, family of origin and saving Egypt and to see how the destiny of Egypt was intertwined with the destiny of um, the family from Canaan. Uh, that there is a way to reach out and build bridges and to make sure that we can all benefit from uh, cooperation in spite of some uh, differences. And I hope that our own world can learn from it. I think we are again at uh, a um, junction where uh, we're not sure. We're not sure about uh, the diaspora that we have celebrated, those in the West, have come to appreciate it, and now we are bedeviled by the fact that there's anti-Semitism in Ivy League uh, schools, and and we see poor performance by presidents of uh, Ivy League universities, and how the war in uh, Gaza, and and Gaza was, you know, part of Egypt for a long time, how um, what's going on there brings about uh, demonstrations against the Jewish people, instead of support. Your um, history, as you explained and shared with our listener, means that you've lived in many diasporas. 
And in each of those diasporas, the Jewish community has experienced periods of uh, wonderful integration and growth. And then uh, whether one is surprised or one reads history and is not surprised, um, has experienced destruction. Um, In your time in the North American rabbinate, Um, You have seen um, great acceptance of the Jewish people and integration into the highest levels of government and success in business and in universities. But as you suggested, we now see unparalleled, unexpected anti-Semitism. Do you think in out of your experience that this anti-Semitism is primarily related to events in the Middle East? Or is this something more deeply held that um, we would have seen uh, prior to 1948 and the state of Israel? Um, Is this just part of the ongoing historical reality that there is anti-Semitism that can't be eradicated? I do believe there is a connection to our very difficult past as Jews. We thought that we were fully integrated. And then we have been just taught that uh, we're not quite fully integrated, unfortunately. I must tell you that early on in my rabbinic career, I served in uh, small towns in the U.S., and I, who grew up in Israel, was a bit surprised that in those small towns, the Jews were a bit insecure. I, I'm the kind of uh, rabbi, human being who speaks up. And, uh, you know, I'm the creation record very, very often. And I'm on TV and radio all the time. And I discovered that, uh, especially in smaller communities, the Jews are hesitant about a uh, spiritual leader who uh, takes a position on issues and confronts uh, power with truth. And and that was a bit surprising to me as someone who grew up in Israel, and I thought that American Jewry was secure enough to stand up and allow its spiritual leaders to uh, be themselves and to do what they're called upon to do, speak truth to power. I think that the experience you have in um, um, small-town America is matched in uh, Canada, but slightly differently because the Jewish community in Canada is so small, we are really unknown mm. to large swaths of Canadians, especially in smaller towns. Um, in America, there was the history beginning in the uh, late 19th century of Jews as peddlers um, throughout Um, the United States, particularly in the South and in the West. Um, But that was not the history in Canada. And so we still have people in Canada who have never met a Jew or heard of um, the Jewish people, except perhaps in church or through the media today, obviously. Um, And yet, and perhaps that's why Canadian Jews have always experienced a sense of uncertainty. Um, Well, I thank you for sharing that with our listeners. Um, Egypt, of course, becomes a, uh, even after the episode discussed in this week's parasha, um, Egypt becomes a place of refuge for Jews um, throughout history. 
until 1947 and 48, um, some of the greatest scholars in Jewish history uh, found refuge from Spain and Portugal and some other um, countries in Egypt. Um, so your insight should be helpful to our listeners, regardless of where they are, about the condition of uh, uncertainty that Jews experience wherever they are. And you're correct, of course, that uh, recently um, events have uh, proven that there is a great deal of anti-Jewish feeling, um, some of which is manifest as anti-Israel feeling, but much of which, of course, is manifest through um, right-wing anti-Jewish Nazism. Um, which has unrelated to Israel. Um, perhaps the most powerful part of our parsha is Moses. And we are introduced to Moses as the baby in the bulrushes, and we're introduced to Moses as the young man who leaves Pharaoh's palace. And we're also introduced to Moses who experiences um, the divine in an unusual way. Um, our listeners would be interested in how you understand these various events and the personage we know as no Moses. Uh, it's really interesting as I'm contemplating two great early Jewish leaders, Joseph and then Moses. Joseph entered the palace where he found refuge. Moses had to leave the palace in order to find his people and his destiny. So that uh, Moses too was well integrated, even more so than Joseph. Early on, he grew up in the palace. He really was an Egyptian. And somehow through certain events, he was reminded of his Hebrew background, and he was compelled by a higher power, but by a God who cared for the oppressed, to reconnect to his brethren. Now, Joseph, too, reconnected to his brethren. But Moses had more to lose, had more to lose, because he was in line to become a pharaoh one day. And he consciously, I believe, gave up that opportunity for a more sacred destiny, and that was to uh, lead his people out of slavery and to teach humanity about the dignity of human beings and about uh, giving up the palace and living in the desert for a higher cause. Um, there is that great discrepancy that you described from the palace to the desert. Um, and I suppose that there is um, a great um, metaphor there. Yeah that yeah. Moses in the palace, um, surrounded by the wealth of Pharaoh and surrounded by positions of power and nobility, um, is unable to connect um, to his people and to, as the first episodes indicate, some sense of justice. And then it's only in the desert uh, unsurrounded by the trappings of power and wealth that he's able to connect with uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I want to push you a bit in the time that's left about the burning bush episode, 
because I'm sure in the 50 years of your rabbinate, you've taught it many different ways, um, or perhaps you have a favorite way of teaching it. Um, share with our listeners how you teach the story known as the burning bush. Is it a real story? Is it a literary illusion? Is it symbolic? Is it all of that? We know the number of interpretations that uh, certain uh, uh, bushes in the desert um, glow at a certain time. Um, we know of uh, also uh, having, uh, if you will, uh, uh, some uh, dreams or uh, being struck by the elements in the wilderness and uh, seeming to sense some colors and some voices. And it's so interesting that the uh, Hebrew word for desert, midbar, if you change the vowels, it becomes medaber, that wilderness can speak. The wilderness can assume a variety of appearances and what seems to be a dead um, piece of real estate can really glow with uh, deeper uh, meanings. And uh, so it's open to interpretation. Right now, I was just hit with the sense, I must have not thought about the burning bush for some time, uh, that uh, you know, being in the desert, I've been to the desert and I know it's very hot. And I know what happens to your feet when you are walking on hot um, desert uh, sand and, and rocks and so forth and so on. So whatever it might be, I, I think that I would place my emphasis on finding the sacred in the wilderness. That the wilderness, away, as you said, from the palace and trappings of power, can give us that time out to focus on what's more important for the Jewish and human soul, and, and that is to find an inner core that can change ourselves and can change history. So uh, I'm not so much into the miracle of the burning bush, but rather into the possible bond that it does have with the sacred and a sense of inner transformation, how we can be changed by uh, the desert. And having been to the Israeli desert, uh, I know in some other deserts in the world, I know that it is, uh, on the one hand, an environment that we want to flee from. It can be dangerous. At the same time, danger and adventure are also very, very inviting. And, and you know, according to the rabbis, the Torah was given to us on no man's land, in the sense that the Torah belongs to everyone, and everyone can claim the Torah, but also no other people can come to the Israelites or to the Jews and, and say, you took away something that belonged to us. Rather, you know, it was free for everyone to pick up, and we were the ones who dared reach out to the burning bush and, and maybe uh, uh, burn, burn our fingers as Moses might have done when he discovered that he was on holy ground, and uh, he appreciated this moment of transformation. Well, it is interesting, of course, that you call it a, a moment of transformation because the book of Exodus, this week's parasha, um, offers three, maybe four opportunities for Moses um, to change who he is. First, he's the boy from the, well, first he's the boy in the bulrushes. Then he's the boy in the uh, palace. 
Then he's the boy who um, the Torah tells us um, sees his um, people being uh, abused and he responds to them. So now he's changed again uh, to have some connection. We're not sure why, but to the people of Israel. And then he flees from Egypt and he's transformed into a shepherd. Um, and it's while he's a shepherd um, experiencing that loneliness, that contemplative moment, that he's transformed again into a uh, person of uh, deep relationship with uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so you seem to be absolutely correct that this book of Exodus, certainly the first parasha, is going to be one of transformation. Um, and the rest of the story of Exodus, again, well known to so many people, will be about big miracles and uh, little miracles. Um, but Moses will be the figure who is central to the entire narrative. And it's his transformation from that um, birth, um, somewhat miraculous birth that he survives, um, into the leader who will confront Pharaoh and then uh, lead the people through the wilderness. As you've pointed out, their entire journey will be through the wilderness. And as you pointed out, um, in the fourth book of the Torah, known in English as Numbers, but in Hebrew known as Bamidbar, in the wilderness. So the wilderness serves as um, a significant uh, petri dish for experimenting for the people of Israel. Um, we just have a few minutes left, so I want to ask you if you have any last thoughts about this phrase, let my people go so that they may serve me. Yeah, well, um, you, you know, I think there was a challenge to Pharaoh by the God of Israel and by the leader of Israel, a human being called Moses. Uh, you, you know, you don't just stand up to a Pharaoh and survive. Uh, Pharaoh owns you. He owns the people who lived in Egypt. And for Moses, a son of Pharaoh, if you will, a son of the palace, to challenge the very authority of Pharaoh was probably unheard of. It's a miracle that he was not killed on the spot, on the spot. I guess his father had some feelings toward, <laughs> toward this baby Moses that grew up to be a very impressive human being. And I'm sure that it was hurting to Pharaoh to know that he was losing the one who was destined to replace him, and yet he chose or he was led by a God, a different kind of a God that Egypt worshipped to redeem a people that really rebelled against uh, what Pharaoh and Egypt stood for. So from the confines of the pyramids, if you will, to the openness of the desert, the pyramids to me represent the tyranny of uh, a dictatorship of sorts that is all closed in. I think we're going to have to leave it there. My guest this morning has been Rabbi Israel Zoberman, founding rabbi of Temple uh, Lev Tikva in Virginia Beach. You can hear our conversation at chri.ca as a podcast, or you can hear it on chri 99.1 FM, or you can download it wherever you download your favorite podcast. 
for Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten, wishing you good morning and shalom. Shalom. Shalom.